Welcome to Christ Central Church. If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, We wrap up our series on generous, uh, saved by a generous God to be a generous people this morning. This is our last one, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm joking. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I've heard from many of you that, uh, that you've enjoyed it as well, and uh, different kind of enjoyment maybe, because some of those verses that we look at are not very enjoyable, right? Uh, but uh, we can be in, enjoy the good fruit that we want them to produce in our lives. And we've covered a lot of ground over the last couple months, uh, and hopefully it's gone more than just in here, but it sunk down to our hearts because we just don't want to know a lot about generosity. We actually want to be generous people. And so this morning, uh, in just thinking what would be an appropriate way to end the series, what's left to say, the one thing we have yet to touch on is an aspect of generosity that is especially near to God's heart, and that's generosity to the poor. And so we're not doing a typical Father's Day uh, message this morning, but I think we're touching on something that's very near to our Father's heart, and that's the care and the generosity to the poor. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at the reason, the reach, and the risk of generosity to the poor, okay? And Luke chapter 10 contains one of the most well-known parables in the Bible, and for those of us who have grown up in the church, uh, we're going to have to pray for fresh eyes to see it this morning, okay? So before we read, let's pray, and then we'll get into Luke chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan, okay? Father, we're so thankful for your presence here with us this morning. We're so thankful that we've been saved by a generous God, and you dwell with your people. You've given us your spirit. You sent Jesus, to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, we just praise you for your goodness and your kindness and your steadfast love toward us. And we just pray this morning as we look at the story of the Good Samaritan that you would unwrap all the Sunday school stories and the flannel graphs and the familiarity of the story of the Good Samaritan so that we can be pierced by the sharp sword of your word this morning. We pray that you would do it, Father. Give us fresh eyes to behold the wonderful things contained in your word this morning. Amen. 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 Okay. The story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So a lawyer in those days isn't so much a lawyer like we would understand a lawyer, like Brahma Mooney or like Danny here. It's much more of like a theologian, okay? So not so much Johnny Cochran and more so John Piper, okay? Just to give you an understanding of who this guy is. He's an expert in the law, in the Old Testament law, and what the Jewish people have added to it, okay? So more theologian than attorney. So the lawyer stands up to test Jesus, saying, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the other thing we need to notice 
is that when people stand up to test Jesus in the New Testament, the hunter becomes the hunted very quickly in those conversations, okay? Jesus is the master at turning the tables, and it usually happens very early on in the conversation. So he comes with the question, and Jesus does a very frustrating process of answering a question with a question, okay? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So in those days, uh, varying groups of people had varying answers to the, to the question, who is my neighbor? And so he wants to see where Jesus lands on this. So the Israelites would say that our neighbor is other Israelites. The Pharisees took an even narrower approach, and their neighbor was other Pharisees. There was a group called the Essenes hanging out by the Dead Sea. Their response was, our neighbor is just other Essenes, and everyone else is actually a son of darkness to be hated. Okay? So you can see a very narrowing approach. Probably greatly affected the Essenes' evangelism approach. <laughs> and probably why they're not around today. <clears throat> so who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied <clears throat> with this story, a story that we know quite well. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You'll notice that Jesus turns the question from who is my neighbor to are you a neighbor? He turns it from who is my neighbor to flip it around and say which one of these men was a neighbor to the guy that was on the side of the road. So let's unpack for a few minutes what it means to be generous to the poor as we see here in Luke chapter 10. First, the reason that we should be generous to the poor is quite simple, and it's this basic truth that God has a heart for and places an ex expectation on the church to care for the poor. God has a heart for and he places an expectation on the church to care for the poor. 
The story of the Good Samaritan isn't a standalone uh, emphasis of God's heart for the poor. The, the, the phrase, go and do likewise, is seen throughout Scripture on every page. Not necessarily in those words, <clears throat> but as you'll see, I'll just take us on a brief tour through the Bible, or tour, <laughs> that the amount of biblical evidence of God's heart for the poor is staggering. So in the Old Testament law, we see God lay down principles to make sure the poor are cared for. Deuteronomy 15.11, There will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In the wisdom and poetry books, God says that He hears the groans of the poor and expects us to as well. Psalm 12.5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. In Proverbs 21.11 or 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Many of the rebukes from the prophets to the nations of Israel deal with their neglect of the poor. In Amos chapter 2, God says he's bringing judgment on Israel for things like selling people off into slavery sexual immorality, and those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. No different when we get to the New Testament. We read one of the most sobering passages in the whole Bible in Matthew 25, where Jesus describes the separation of Christians from non-Christians in terms of those who deal with the poor. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the others into eternal life. Care for the poor was a trademark of the early church. Acts 4, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And in the New Testament letters, James uses the neglect of the poor as an example of faith that is dead. James 2, 14-17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Over and over and over and over on every page is go and do likewise. God has a heart for and an expectation on the church to care for the poor. I've been going through Psalms every day. This morning I sit down, Psalm 41.1, Blessed is the man who considers the poor. You can't escape it. If you read the Bible, you cannot avoid it. It is there. God expects His church to care for the poor. And if our response is, which uh, some give, well, that's fine then, but now I pay my taxes. The government takes care of the poor. The government takes a good, clean slick off the top of my 
paycheck, and they take care of the poor with social assistance and social development. So I am giving to the poor because they're giving them an income, they're giving them a place to live, so why do I need to now give to the poor? Maybe you've never thought of that. Maybe you have. And if you have, I would say three things. I would say, Jesus said, pay your taxes, and he said, give to the poor. And we can be thankful in this country that the government uses some of our tax money to help the poor, but in reality, they are two independent things. And the reality is our government could use our taxes on a lot lesser things. And we can praise God that they overlap those two independent things, but it does not mean that we do not give. Second, I would say that as great as all that is, it's still not enough. And there are still gaps. And who's going to fill the gaps if the church doesn't fill the gaps? And thirdly, I would say, and you can just chew on it, that when Jesus says, when I was naked and hungry and you didn't feed me, you are not going to respond, yes, I did, I paid my taxes. You just aren't. <laughs> or maybe your response is, I can't do it. <clears throat> I see that I should. We see it there in the Bible. But my response is, I can't do it. It's too much. This is the only argument I will agree with you on. You can't do it. You can't do it. When Jesus told the lawyer to love God with all his heart, soul, and might, and love his neighbor as himself, the proper response is not to try to squirm out from underneath that by narrowing who our neighbor is. The proper response is to say, I can't. I can't do it. I can't love the Lord my God, with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my might. I can't love my neighbor as myself. The only person I love as myself is myself. I'm too selfish. I'm too divided. My heart is too divided towards you, God. I cannot do it. That's the proper response to Jesus' question. It isn't to try to squirm out and how different the conversation would have went if instead of trying to justify himself, he went to Jesus for his justification. If he didn't try to lessen the load by saying, well, who is my neighbor? If he went to Jesus, who gives us rest. We will never be able to extend the kind of generosity that God requires until we receive the generosity that God provides. When we come to Jesus, we confess our sin, put our trust in him, we become new creations. He takes out the heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts, and the overflow of that love is love for others. We now toil with the energy He powerfully supplies through His Holy Spirit. We now can look to Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many, so that we can now not grow weary or faint-hearted in doing good. It's not out of duty. It's not out of guilt. Our generosity flows out of the gospel. So yes, we need to know that right now there are 1.4 billion people living on a $1.25 or less a day. We need to know that there's 1.7 
billion people in the world that don't have access to clean water. We need to know that the second leading cause of death in children under five is diarrhea. 700,000 children die every day over something that is just a joke in elementary school because we're so blessed. Do you understand? 700,000 every day about die over something like diarrhea. The majority of our world is poor. But knowing our wealth and the world's poverty does not give us the kind of radical generosity that is needed that God spells out in His Word. Statistics do not change us. The gospel changes us. You can read those statistics, you can watch the commercials, and your heart can be moved, but it will not last, and it has limits. The gospel gives us a generosity that is limitless and that is lasting. God gives us the reason that we should care for the poor, and His grace also gives us the reason that we are able. We need to ask ourselves, why did God change our life? Why did He fill me with His Spirit? We love to trumpet that we are a grace-based church, that we are a Spirit-filled church, and we will continue to do that as we should, but we're only a grace-based church and a Spirit-filled church as much as we are a poor, caring church. God gives us the reason that we should, and He gives us the reason that we are able by a new life in Him. Second, the reach of our generosity. What should the reach of our generosity be for the poor? How far should it go? Who should we be generous towards? What kind of things should we give? First, our generosity of the poor should be both inside the church and out. Maybe you haven't seen this yet in your reading of the Word, but the clear emphasis in the Bible is that our first priority for helping the poor are our poor brothers and sisters in Christ. The clear emphasis in the Bible is that our first priority for helping the poor are our poor brothers and sisters in Christ. Most of the biblical passages dealing with the poor have this emphasis. Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 1 John 3, 17, If anyone has the world's good goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In the church, we have a special responsibility to care for the poor within. The clear indication that we have God's love abiding in us is that we respond to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Bible also makes it clear that we're not just a fellowship. We're on a mission. We're on a mission. And part of that mission is reaching out to the poor who are not a part of our community of believers. The message from the parable of the Good Samaritan is that our generosity towards the poor needs to extend even to those we would consider strangers, outcasts, or enemies. The whole purpose of the story is to tear down any wall that we may have set up to limit our involvement. The Jews hated Samaritans. They were the despised half-breed of the north, and Jesus is intentionally pushing 
on that nerve to bring down any walls. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And we see this concept clearly in Galatians 6.10 where Paul says, Do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and with the emphasis on those who are of the household of faith. Everyone, all kinds of poor, no matter how they got there or what they did or didn't do to get there. And so this is where we say, hold on, Brent. What if they've brought it on themselves? I understand giving to the poor when it's happened from something outside of themselves, maybe a natural disaster, maybe a bad turn of events, but what about those who have brought it on themselves? Should we care for those poor? Should we really help those people? To which my response would be, who put you in the state that you were in before Jesus changed your life? We've all brought poverty on ourselves, and yet he who was rich became poor so that in him you might have the riches of God. We've all brought poverty on ourselves. We're all completely undeserving of the generosity that God has given us. And until we see ourselves as the bloody, beaten, half-dead guy on the side of the road, <clears throat> we'll always come up with this argument. Seeing ourselves as that guy on the side of the road, helpless, dying, crying out to God for His generosity, wipes away any attitude of an undeserving poor. We can let wisdom shape our generosity, but our generosity, generosity should still flow. We can let wisdom shape that generosity and <clears throat> how it's, that, how it's uh, given, but our generosity should still flow. Second, our reach should include both the local and global poor. Like the Good Samaritan, there are people on our roads, people we are walking by every day who have great needs. And we as a church need to be a city set on a hill. We need to be salt and light in Fredericton. And I'm so happy and privileged to be a part of a church that uh, feels that and acts in that. Our presence in the city of Fredericton needs to be felt, and I think it is felt. If our church was gone tomorrow, I think it would leave a hole. I'd love it to leave a bigger hole, as we all should, but I think if our church was gone tomorrow, it would leave a hole in the care for the poor. But we need more. We need more people on the front lines because the need is so great. Not just locally, <clears throat> but globally as well. The, the poverty we see around us in Fredericton is a pale reflection of the state of the poor globally. We need to shake off any ideas of this as just a small, particular group. As I said, the majority of people in the world are poor. The majority are poor. We can't shelter ourselves from the reality that the needs 
are immense. We don't have the privilege of just putting our heads down and saying, we'll focus on our community and the churches in other parts of the world put their heads down and focus on their communities and then that is sufficient. Oftentimes there aren't churches in those other communities and if they are, they don't have the resources to help. Our care for the poor needs to be local and global. The Good Samaritan crossed the road, cared for the man in the dirt, and we need to do the same here in Fredericton, yes, but also with the world the way it is, with technology as advanced as it is, with how quick travel is, with all the contacts and connections that we have in the world, it's as easy to cross the road as it is to cross the Atlantic. Like I was just thinking about this this week. I can stand here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and hours later be in Bujumbara, Burundi. Hours. It's crazy when you think of it. it maybe it's not to you because we're so used to it. But when this was written, that is like, that's fantasy land, right? I can stand here in Fredericton, and in hours later, I can be anywhere in the world. With one click of a button, my money can be anywhere in the world. It's never been easier to be generous than it is right now. It's as easy for us to cross the Atlantic and be generous with our time, with our resources, with our money, as it was for that guy to get off his horse and cross the road and pick this guy up. So yeah, the global needs are immense, but we have a multitude of advancements and resources that aid us in that process. Our reach needs to be local and global. Thirdly, our reach should contain both word and deed. It should contain both word and deed. We don't want to fall to... We don't, we don't want to be a church that just shares the gospel and never cares for the personal needs of people. We also don't want to fall to a level where our only concern are filling bellies and taking care of people and we don't have the courage or the gumption or whatever it is to share the gospel with those people as well. Because the reality is, a person with a full belly, if they still die without Christ, they still face hell for eternity. That's the reality. The other side is, it's hard for people to hear the gospel when they die of starvation. It's very hard for them to hear that when they've died. And so we need both word and deed together. Tim Keller says this, it's unthinkable that we could truly love an individual and not want to share the gospel as well as to meet the person's basic human needs. It's unthinkable to say we love that person, but we don't want to share them the gospel or we don't want to meet their needs. He calls it the two wings of the plane and how well does the plane fly with just one. Our generosity to the poor should include our money, our time, our service, our friendship, our resources, our encouragement, and our message of the gospel. If we share the gospel with the poor, all the while doing nothing to alleviate their condition, our generosity is incomplete 
and if we give our time and our money to the poor, but do not tell them the good news of Jesus, our generosity is incomplete. So our reach for generosity is both in the church and out, outside of the church. We want to be a strong fellowship, taking care of each other, but we also want to be on mission, impacting the city, impacting the world, locally and globally. And the message that we bring, what we're carrying with us, isn't just the gospel in word, it's the gospel in deed. It's giving our time, it's giving our money, and it's giving the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the reach of our generosity. We can't do it on our own. It's by a continual filling of the Holy Spirit, leaning in to Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Just reading these verses this week, <clears throat> you're just struck by the emphasis, by the weight, by the high calling that we have as a church, as individuals. And I pray that God's beginning to work that in you by His Spirit, by just seeing uh, His call of go and do likewise. I was preparing this week was not, it wasn't a fun week. It wasn't an easy week. You read the verses and you don't want to read them. Your flesh doesn't want to read go and do likewise. You feel the high call on your life. You also feel the enormous generosity of God in your own life. When we think about the poor, oftentimes, and our generosity towards them, oftentimes we think about the risk that it might involve, and we can be sure that it is indeed risky, and it will indeed involve a sacrifice on some level, and this isn't anything new to us. The arguments that we'll look at or the excuses, we've used them many times in the past, or maybe you're like me, and this week you felt them roaming around in your own heart. But there's four what-ifs that we often use when we talk about the risks of being generous to the poor and we don't want to use these as smoke screens to hide behind and not be generous. The first is this. What if, what if they're not grateful? What if they're not grateful? What if I give of my time, my money, and they sneer and they turn away? What if they don't even give me a thank you? Well, as Simon Pettit said in his sermon, Remember the Poor, which was a landmark message for the history of New Frontiers in 1998. It's online. You can listen to it. He said, that's not what we're in it for. That's not what we're in it for. It's not even the point. What was the response of the guy on the side of the road that the Good Samaritan helped? It's not there. Doesn't matter. The Good Samaritan gave him two denarii. We don't know what he did with it. We don't know what happened when he woke up in that inn. The response doesn't matter. Ultimately, we give out of being a recipient and grateful for the generosity of God and not because the recipient of our generosity will be grateful. That's not the reason 
that we give. And when we give in that way, we are a reflection of our Father who in Luke 6 is described as the Most High who is kind to the ungrateful. Second, well, what if I'm taken advantage of? What if the person doesn't really have a need? What if they take my money and in actuality they've got more money than I do and they've, they've took me hook, line, and sinker? What if, I've, what if I'm taken advantage of? How many times do you think the people working on our street level team have been taken advantage of? Probably too many to count. Do we need wisdom? Do you pray for discernment? Absolutely. But you don't let the fear that you might be taken advantage of paralyze you from being generous. Unless you know for certain, I would say give. If there is any doubt at all, I would say give. Leave the results to God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Thirdly, what if I don't have enough for myself? What if I give to the poor and put myself in want? Well, we do need to be wise. We do need to take care of our families. We do need to plan ahead. But we also need to let Jesus' words rest on us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us would never dream of willingly putting ourselves in need, not provided for, not protected. We give to ourselves without even batting an eye. And Jesus says, love your neighbor that way. I'm not, I'm not uh, twisting anything. It's right there in the Word. So it's, are we going to let the Word rest on us or are we going to run out from underneath it? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So, we use up the last of our wine and oil. We tear the sleeves off our shirt to bandage them up. We give up two days' wages to make sure they're good. That's what the Good Samaritan did. He loved the neighbor as himself. Fourthly, what if I'm not safe? What if I'm not safe? When we insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves so that we never encounter any sort of risk to our safety, we ultimately hamstring our generosity to the poor. If you say, I want to be generous to the poor, but I don't want to put myself in any uncomfortable situation, I don't want to put myself in anything that might compromise my safety, you're really hamstringing your ability to be generous to the poor. And again, we need to be wise, we need to use common sense, but we need to make sure that our common sense has been shaped by the Word of God. And so we don't want our desire for safety to cause us not to get off our horse and keep on going by because the robbers could still be in the bushes. Right? We don't want our concept of wisdom to keep us on our horse and not get off because, well, there's lots of caves around, who knows, these guys might have just done this, they might be, and then I would be there. And The people who played it safe are the Levite and the priest. The people who played it safe were the Levite 
and the priest. It will be risky, and at times it may take us out of our comfort zone, out of our safety zone. So we don't want to let these what-ifs stand in the way of our generosity. What if they aren't grateful? What if I'm taken advantage of? What if I put myself in need? What if I'm not safe? What if we don't? That's the fifth what-if to think about. What if we don't? What if we're not generous to the poor? Ultimately, our question shouldn't be what is the risk of being generous to the poor. Our question should be what is the risk if we're not generous to the poor? What happens if the Samaritan bought Samaritan walks by like the Levite and the priest before him. What happens if the Samaritan passes by on the other side? It's not a story that would last as long as it has if that was Jesus' story. One day there was a priest, he walked by. One day there was a Levite, he walked by. One day there was a Samaritan, and he walked by. End. Period. The cost of neglecting the poor is much greater. It's not optional. It's not a nice addition if we have the time and the resources to fit it in. It's the mark of true faith. It leads to great rewards in heaven. Without it, we are an incomplete church with an incomplete gospel. Reading that, reading this week, that was just cemented in my heart. Without the care of of the poor, we are incomplete in what we're doing and we're presenting an incomplete message to the world. How thankful I am that corporately our church is not on the sideline in this, but I think you would agree with me, more needs to be done. More needs to be done. It worries me a bit that if Kelly Curtis wasn't here tomorrow, if it would all just collapse. Just to be honest. If Kelly Curtis wasn't here tomorrow, does anybody here have the courage, the sacrifice, the desire, the heart for the poor to pick up the baton and take on all the heartache and all the trouble and all the joy and all the rewards that come with it? Or will it all just fall? If it's not us, who is going to do it? Tim Keller says this. You can put the quote up on the screen. We'll finish with this. Tim Keller says, Only the ministry of the church and the millions of many churches, Christian homes, throughout the country can attack the roots of social problems. Only the church can minister to the whole person. Only the gospel understands that sin has ruined us both individually and socially. Only Christians armed with the word and spirit, planning and working to spread the kingdom and righteousness of Christ can transform a nation as well as a neighborhood, as well as a broken heart. We have the greatest gift that can be given. We cannot leave it to secular organizations to care for the poor. Their care is incomplete. It's only the church that can cause the transformation that is needed. 
And if it's not us, then who will do it? Let's stand. <clears throat> this is what I'd, I'd like to do. Joel can come up. We have lots of time. Joel can come up. He can lead us again in worship. And I just want to take some time. If you're here as part of our church and you are involved in the street level work, if you're involved in the drop-in and the sandwich run, if you're involved in uh, the work of justice that's beginning to get some traction in our church, uh, I want you just to come up and we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you uh, to go another leg of the journey. It's not about um, public recognition. It's that we recognize that you're on the front lines and it's hard. And it's hard. And we want to encourage you. We want to build you up. And so while they're worshiping, we want to pray for you. So if you're involved in that, come on up. <clears throat> Make your way to the front. And I'll say this as well. <clears throat>